morning. Find ourselves again today in the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> now we're in the sixth chapter. This, is, of course, is the fast-paced account of Mark. <clears throat> and we're well into the ministry of Jesus. He's about 30 years old. So he's been around for three decades, growing up with his carpenter father. A large family, many siblings. He's launched his ministry in Judea with the cleansing of the temple. He had many months in the ministry of Judea, and then he went to Galilee. And there he had a long ministry, probably extending over a year. And he's demonstrated his power over illness, over miraculous healings. He has complete power and dominance over demons. It should be clear to everyone paying attention that he has the power of God. Last week, Bren covered a section of chapter 5 where we saw some pretty incredible examples of faith. Particularly, you remember the woman who had been ill for 12 years. She had been dealing with a bleeding problem that was not getting any better. It was getting worse. And she believed that if she was just able to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, that she would be healed of her infirmity. As we remember, a huge crowd would, would follow Jesus. And so she pushed through the crowd. She was able to touch him, and she was healed. And then you remember Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who came to Jesus saying that his little girl 12-year-old girl, was near death. And he asked Jesus if he would please come and lay hands on her. And you'll remember that during the slow progression of that whole crowd moving along, Jairus was finally met by some of his own servants coming from his home with the news that his little girl was already dead. And there was now no need to continue to bother Jesus about it. And Jesus looked at him. And do you remember what he said? He said, don't be afraid, just believe. Once again, we come back to that issue of faith and the importance of faith this week. Last week, we were reminded in that study that faith and trust play a huge part as a key to seeing the power of God manifest in our lives. We also acknowledge that faith is a mystery, too. The week before last, we looked at that story of the man in the tombs, and we saw the incredible demonstration of God's power. There was not really anybody around that was exercising their faith as it relates to that, and it was just God's sovereign move of deliverance for that man. And you know, we ended up our study last week seeing that faith is important. Jesus said to that woman with the bleeding problem, your faith has made you well. A faith in a mighty, powerful, loving, caring, perfect God. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the same issue of faith, 
But if it were a coin, we're going to be flipping it over and looking what's on the other side. And what's on the other side of faith is unbelief. As we recall, Mark is not really big in giving to us his descriptions of Jesus. He doesn't spend a lot of time giving us his opinions on Jesus. He touches on prophecy just a little and Jesus' fulfillment a lot less than some other gospel writers. Mark's writing style is storytelling. He prefers to share stories about Jesus' life and then allow us to see Jesus and who he is through the eyes of other people. We get to do that a lot in different ways. So as Jesus is traveling and doing things, we can see his interaction with people. What did they think about Jesus? And we see some people start to follow Jesus and see what his disciples say about him. And he encounters teachers and religious authorities, and we see what those people think about him. This week, we see this village, and there's these people that know Jesus. And let's dig into this. Today, we're going to look, be looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. So if you can open your Bibles, we'll read those six verses together. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom has been given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this majestic gift of your word. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. A few weeks back, we saw the Gospel of Mark record an occasion where Jesus' family came to intercede in his ministry as they felt he was embarrassing the family. This theme continues here. And at first to me, it was a bit troubling and it seemed out of place with the overall theme presented in the Gospels. But as I dug into it deeper this week, I see that it adds a ton of depth to the whole history and evidence and the truth of it all. Let's take a look at each of the verses. Verse 1 says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples 
followed him. The there in this verse is Capernaum, where Jesus had just performed many miracles. And he came back to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Bethlehem, that's where he was born, but his hometown was actually Nazareth. It's about 25 miles away from Capernaum, far north of Bethlehem. Nazareth was really an insignificant place with fewer than 500 people living there. The size of this little village was just a little bit over 60 acres, which, if you think about it, is quite small. 60 acres is an area the size of the land between Emerald Street over here and Torrance Boulevard and from PCH down to the ocean. It's quite small. It was so obscure that it is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. And yet, Jesus, the Son of God, lived there for almost three decades of his life. The town didn't have a good reputation either. In fact, listen to how Jesus' own disciples describe this town in John chapter 1, verse 44 and 45. Philip finds Nathanael, and he invites him to follow Jesus. Nathanael says this, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And having grown up in this tiny little place, Jesus probably knew everybody in town. We don't know why Jesus wanted to go back to Nazareth, with this, but with this location change also comes a change in the theme of this gospel and the mood of this narrative. This is not Jesus' first trip to Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, which Ed read for us earlier, we read an account which happened about a year earlier. Jesus had left Nazareth as a regular guy, and then he came back as a rabbi. And it was just after Jesus was baptized and sent 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And after that, his first missionary stop was his hometown of Nazareth. The people who had known Jesus best were enraged by his gospel message after one sermon. If you recall, they were so angry at Jesus, they turned into a mob and they tried to kill him. They literally tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Regardless of that personal experience, Jesus decides to go back after a year, and he's going to preach the gospel to them one more time. So the mood changes here because Jesus, as he's traveled and taught, will notice he's been well-received for the most part. People want him. They want Jesus to heal their friends. They want to hear his message. We're going to find out here, though, in Nazareth, he's not well received. So verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Despite his hometown's violent response in Jesus' previous visit, they did invite him back on this occasion to teach in the synagogue. They had no doubt heard all of the stories of their former resident. Now he is not a kid from a small village anymore. At this point, he's solidly in his ministry. He is a popular rabbi, and the whole region is talking about him. The Nazarenes wanted to hear what he had to say. But after his message, or maybe even before or during his message, they start asking questions again. They are offended. Where did this guy get these things? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? And how are these miracles performed? These are rhetorical questions. These are dumb questions. Where did he get these things? Where else would he get these things? God revealed them to Jesus. And Jesus is now proclaiming the truth to the Nazarenes. Notice here that the Nazarenes are using distancing language. They say, this man. Where did this man get these things? People say things in this way to distance themselves from that person. They believe that Nazareth could not produce anyone like Jesus. They had no faith in themselves. They had no faith in any one of their own. It says the townspeople were astonished. Now, astonished is not a good thing in this verse. It's a negative thing. They were astonished in a negative way. Their astonishment was that all his wisdom was coming from Jesus, from all people. It was coming from the neighborhood kid. The word used for astonished here means to strike. So they were very surprised to hear this person teaching like the wisest rabbi they had ever heard. They were also surprised that Jesus was training disciples as the disciples were there with him. He was training them like a rabbi would. Especially when you know from their perspective, Jesus was not a rabbi. The problem here is that these people thought they knew Jesus. They knew Jesus had not studied under any of the great rabbis of the day. So he should not be qualified to be a teacher. He was just a carpenter. A carpenter was a rather uncivilized occupation. Carpenters were uneducated. Jews had a high regard for manual labor, but some of them draw the line when it comes to a rabbi. They believed rabbis had to devote themselves to study, unlike anyone who works with their hands. Any kind of labor is out of the question, because from their perspective, a rabbi cannot do both. You cannot have two professions from the Jewish perspective when it comes to being a rabbi. So they were shocked that Jesus walked into the synagogue and he began to teach them without having the proper credentials. But he had such authority when he taught. They knew that Jesus didn't learn this stuff locally, and they knew that Jesus didn't go to any rabbinical school. So the people looked at Jesus and they said, what is this carpenter doing here, teaching in our synagogue like this? We know you. 
We know that you're just an ordinary, unschooled Nazarene, just like the rest of us. We all know that you have no business teaching with this kind of wisdom. It's these kinds of questions that testify to the humanity of Jesus. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is truly human, and he's also truly divine. It's unbelievable that Jesus, until he began his ministry here, that his deity was so hidden that even the people in his hometown had no idea that he was God incarnate. Verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Once again, the ridiculous questions start coming. What is his job? Who's his mom? Who are his siblings? But what do those questions have to do with the gospel message? A refusal to believe leads to rationalization and ultimately rejection. They're asking the question, isn't Jesus just a typical ordinary guy who makes his living with his hands just like the rest of us? Notice here, they don't call Jesus by name, but by profession. Isn't this the carpenter? This is meant to be a demeaning expression. Carpenter is the word tecton. We get the word tech from that. We get architect from that. Somebody who builds an ark, an arch, refers to a builder. We get the word, uh, the word tecton could refer to a mason, a stonemason, a smith, somebody who worked with metal, a shipbuilder, a sculptor. It's a very broad term. And what would be the best way to say it would be that he was a builder. A builder of what? We don't quite know, but he was a builder. He was part, he was not part of the elite. He wasn't a part of the clergy. And so they focused on what is irrelevant. Given the scarcity of wood and the prevalence of stone in Israel, it wouldn't be surprising at all that Jesus was both a carpenter and a stonemason. We could say that he was a handyman. He was a jack of all trades. And he did whatever he had to do to make a living for his family. He learned these things from Joseph, his stepfather. So this title is probably meant negatively. The people that Jesus grew up with found it so unbelievable that a tecton from Nazareth, of all places, could exhibit such power, such divine power, as he preached in the synagogue. What is amazing is that Jesus' life before ministry was so normal, it was so ordinary, that no one could believe that he is the Christ, that he is God. So we have Jesus as the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He was a tradesman before God the Father commissioned him into ministry. It's interesting that the God of the universe, who spoke all things into existence, everything that we can see, all the things we can't see, that he developed the skills to handcraft furniture and cupboards and stools and benches and plows and yokes and knives. Then they ask, 
isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? In almost every case, the Jews identify men according to their fathers, not to their mothers. This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is referred to as the son of Mary. Legally speaking, Jesus was the son of Joseph. If Jesus had to get a driver's license, it would have said, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Even if Jesus were dead at this, if Joseph were dead at this time, it would still be customary to call Jesus the son of Joseph. But instead, they call him the son of Mary. Why? The best guess is that they still believe that Jesus was an illegitimate son and Mary conceived him out of wedlock. The Nazarenes are smug. They are proud. So much so that they start listing by name all of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. Contrast the Nazarenes' thinking of who Jesus is, the son of Mary, with who Jesus actually is. As we look back earlier in Mark, we covered the story of the paralytic who was dropped down through the ceiling. And remember in Mark 2, 10, Jesus, in answering a question, calls himself the Son of Man. He's referring to the title, Son of Man, from Daniel 7, 13. That passage is pointing forward to Christ, saying that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is not so much a reference to his humanity, but his deity. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins and do miraculous signs and wonders and powers, including healing the paralytic. The title Son of Man is used by Jesus many times, including at Peter's confession in Matthew 16.33, where he asks, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The people in Nazareth had no idea what they were saying when they called him as just a carpenter and the son of Mary and named his family members. But to give him dominion, glory, and kingdom, as is stated, we do not know much about Jesus' siblings here, but one of the things that we do know is that Mary at this point is probably the only believer. We also know that James later became the church leader in Jerusalem. He also wrote the New Testament book of James. We know that Judas, and don't confuse him with the disciple Judas who later betrayed Jesus, was Jesus' half-brother, later became a leader in the church, he wrote the New Testament book of Jude. So his sisters and his brothers at this time didn't understand him. They did not support him. We learned back in Mark chapter 3 that his family thought he was insane. The Nazarene people during this church visit are asking the question, you know, Jesus, your own family does not believe you. Why should we? And if they don't believe you, we're not going to either. So they were offended. 
Scandaliso is the word used for offended. We get our word scandalized from it. It means to cause one to stumble. These people were scandalized by Jesus. They stumbled over him. They were profoundly offended by his gospel message. Jesus embarrassed them, so they rejected him. God said in advance that this was going to happen. Five to seven hundred years before Jesus was even born, God speaks of this through his word. Psalm 118, 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this verse about himself when he's talking to the Jewish religious leaders. Peter also quotes it to the Sanhedrin. Here we see Jesus was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own family, by the villagers, by the whole nation of Israel. In Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and among his own household. So this is the first result. They refuse to honor him. Here's a situation in Nazareth where they thought they were familiar with Jesus, and because they thought they were, they didn't really know who he was. And as a result, they denied his power, and he denied it to them. And the next verse will bring that out. As we read this, it's easy for us to stand on the sidelines and sort of point fingers at those Nazarenes and say, gee, those people were really dumb, and they didn't know who he was. And yet here, in 2022, there are many that think they are so familiar with Jesus that they really have no idea of who he is. His name is so common, and the stories are so well known, many in this time have become gospel-resistant. And we see this today when people are offended by Jesus. They refuse to honor him according to who he says he is. They will not do that. They say, we will not honor this Jesus character of yours. I don't care. I don't care who you say he is. I don't care what you say. I don't care what he says or said. I don't care what the Bible says. We refuse to believe it. We refuse to honor or speak of him in a way that would extend honor. This is the powerful unbelief. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But we know that they, that is the Nazarenes, had something to do with that. The fact that Jesus didn't do very many miracles around them. Mark does it more by inference, but in the parallel account in Matthew, he just comes right out and says it. So let me show you from Matthew's account, chapter 13, verse 58. It says, 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this is Matthew relating the exact same event, and he just calls it the way it is. Here's why Jesus didn't do much around them. He didn't heal all the people. He didn't do any miracles. It was because of their unbelief. There's no uncertainty. And what is interesting about this is that we see here that their unbelief limited what Jesus could do among them. Now, that is a very important statement. Now, here's the interesting part of that. I'm pretty sure they were oblivious to the fact that it was their unbelief that was causing any kind of a problem or whether there was any barrier. In fact, some of them probably said, we've been hearing about all these miracles. We've been hearing about all these incredible things Jesus is doing. But we have our doubts. We're going to believe it when we see it. They are questioning whether these things really happened. They've never even questioned whether or not they might have something to do with it not happening in Nazareth. So although God is omnipotent, God is all-powerful, he's not going to bless anybody in their sin and in their rebellion. Because the issue was not that Jesus lacked the power to heal anybody, to perform miracles in Nazareth. The question becomes, why should he? Why should Jesus perform miracles there when nobody believes him? Even if he did perform a miracle, they were still not going to believe. It was useless. The whole reason for miracles is to validate the gospel message. Because the Nazarenes had already made up their minds about Jesus, miracles were completely unnecessary. Nothing was going to convince these guys. So they refused to believe. And because they refused to believe, they didn't even bring their sick to Jesus. Everybody just stayed home. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief and went about among the villages teaching. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And you'll notice here that one of the first things we see in this passage is at the very beginning of this verse. If you look with me here again, you'll see it says, he, meaning Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. This is an amazing statement. The word used means astonished or amazed. He was amazed and astonished at their unbelief. And you know, there's only two instances in all the gospel accounts where Jesus marveled at anything. And this is one of them right here. He comes into his hometown, and he marvels at their unbelief. The second thing that Jesus marveled at, we talked about last week. We didn't actually look at the verse, but we looked at that Roman centurion. The Roman soldier, a Gentile, who came to Jesus and said, my servant is sick and near death. You know, would you please heal him? And Jesus said, okay, I'll come with you. In the story, the man said, no, it's not necessary for you to come with me. Just give the word, and I know that he'll be healed. In Luke chapter 7, 
It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We think about faith as powerful, don't we? Faith moves mountains, but unbelief is powerful as well. Unbelief is a great force. The power of unbelief is so great that it extends throughout eternity. Jesus is amazed by unbelief because he knows the consequences of it. Adam and Eve refused to believe, and we're all paying for it today for their unbelief. The people of Noah's day refused to believe his warning, and the consequence of their unbelief is they were drowned in the flood. They are now paying today for their unbelief in a very real place called hell. Israel's unbelief caused an entire generation of people to die in the wilderness. And even after they crossed over into the promised land, they were unbelieving again. It brought about continued judgment upon them. And here in his hometown, Jesus was surprised to see the depth of their callousness as well. Here's a key point. Unbelief breeds hostility. Those who do not believe that Jesus will soon believe in Jesus, those who do not believe that Jesus is God will soon hate Jesus. There is no middle ground. We see a divine judgment here on Nazareth. So Jesus leaves. He goes to some other villages to preach. But for the residents of Nazareth, the outcome of this decision is tragic. It was tragic because history has shown us that there was no church built in Nazareth until the time of Constantine, about 300 years later. They built the church 300 years after Jesus suffered and died and was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. This scripture passage shows us the power of unbelief. We see the Nazarene's total lack of respect of Jesus. It's so easy for us to to look at those Nazarenes as a bunch of knuckleheads and ask, how could they not see that Jesus is God? How could they not believe that? For many of us, we've read the gospel story many times, and it's always easier for us to look at them and their lives and critique them. But the question becomes, what about today? What about your life with Jesus? Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Let me ask you this. In what area of your own life are you unbelieving now? Let me ask it in a different way. In what area of your life are you very careful? In what area of your life are you dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's? Are you someone who considers yourself to have a, lot, have a lot of common sense? Are you a rational person? Maybe you've got to have everything in order, to have everything just perfect before you can make a decision to move forward with something. And you may consider those things good qualities, and usually they are. But you know what? God may call that unbelief. Look at Matthew 6. 25, where it says, 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Why are you worried about your life? Why do we do that? Do you not believe God? Do you not believe his promises? Do you think of him with his arms crossed and he's got a scowl on his face and he's angry with you? Do you always feel like you've got to make something happen? Do you always look to yourself to do it? Rather than taking offense at Jesus and rejecting him as king, I want to encourage you to pursue a second response we see echoed in this text, and that's this. We can humbly accept Jesus as king and serve him as Lord. All of Jesus' claims would be absolutely offensive unless they were true. And this is where we see that Jesus didn't just make these claims, but he backed them up with his life. And rather than being a stumbling block, they became the greatest news in all the world to us. This is the good news of Jesus. Then when, that when we could do nothing to save us from ourselves, God, out of love for you and me, did everything necessary for us. He came down to this earth in person of Jesus, who was both fully man and fully God. He lived a perfect, sinful, sinless life and willingly went to die on the cross in our place, bearing the full penalty of what we deserved. An infinite Savior taking on the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf. And here's the key. He didn't stay dead, but rather three days later he rose from the dead, proving that he was God, proclaiming that whoever turns from their sin and trusts in his free will of salvation, no matter who they are or what they've done, they will receive a new heart. They will be restored in their relationship to him that will last for all of eternity. He has done the unimaginable, and he invites us to humbly receive his grace. And his mighty works attest to, his, to this. Each of those miracles that took place in the previous chapters show how mighty and powerful Jesus is. We see at the end of Mark chapter 4 that Jesus is sovereign over nature when he commands a storm such that the wind and the rain and the sea become still. Who can do that? And he is sovereign over the spiritual realm. He encounters a legion, man possessed by many demons. And at his command, the demons flee, and the legion's life is changed forever. And he's sovereign over disease. Jesus is the one with, who, with a brush of his cloak, heals a woman who's been bleeding without explanation for 12 years. And ultimately, the best news of all, Jesus is sovereign over death. He follows Jairus to his home, where his young daughter was lying lifeless and cold in his house. People said, Jesus, you're too late. She's already died. And with the word, he brings her back to life. Her health fully restored, just as he eventually would do to his own body. With such good news, 
particularly for those of you who we know these past few years have lost loved ones in the Lord. I love the way the individuals in those miracles respond to Jesus. Notice something about how the three people approached Jesus, meaning Legion, the bleeding woman, and Jairus, the ruler from the synagogue. In each case, this is how Mark describes their response to Jesus. They fell down before him. They humbly bow before Jesus, recognizing he's Lord, and surrender their entire lives to his authority. It's like it actually says about Legion in chapter 5, verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. marveled. This was in stark contrast to the ones in Nazareth who sit arms crossed, refusing to believe. We see some hope, though, in verse 5. It says this, and he could no, do no mighty work except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So a ray of light. We aren't told why Jesus would heal just those few individuals and the impact it had on them. The Bible doesn't tell us, but maybe there are a few people who actually did believe in this hometown. Or maybe it was just an act of Christ's divine grace toward them. Regardless, it shows that there's, there's still hope, even for those who have rejected Jesus, that he will still welcome you back when you rejected him. This is who Jesus is. He is infinitely good, full of patience, full of love, full of mercy, full of grace. In fact, I want to read one of the many glorious descriptions I think of we have of Jesus in the New Testament. This comes from the Apostle Paul, who was one of the chief haters of Jesus and attacker of Christians in his prior life. But his life was transformed to such an ex extent that he could say this of Jesus, the one he had hated. We read it in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all, to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is he. This is the one we get to read about today. And when it comes to Jesus, we have two choices. We either fall down as those individuals did and worship him as king, or we throw, off, throw him off the cliff and reject him. There is no neutral. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, 
Whoever is not with me is against me. How will you respond to Jesus? I want to urge you, if you've not trusted in Jesus as Lord, do so today. Do not put this off, as no one knows how much time we have left. And again, be encouraged that even if you've been hostile towards him in the past, he will still welcome you back graciously as his son or daughter. And if you turn to him in repentance, regardless of what that rebellion has looked like, but also be warned if you continue in your rejection, you, Jesus might allow your heart to become calloused and cold to the point of no return. So how will you respond to Jesus? I want to leave you with two warnings that I think are implied in this section of Mark. First one, you can have knowledge without faith. As you read through this passage, you can see that the people don't necessarily doubt that God is at work within Jesus and his miracles. In verse 2, they recognize the mighty works that were done with his hands. And we mentioned before, they had heard about the amazing miracles Jesus had done prior to coming to Nazareth. He had healed people, and he'd cast out demons, and he'd brought someone back from the dead. The people may have also recognized that this wisdom given to him was actually from God. Yet Jesus could still see the state of their hearts. And as the text says, he marveled at the lack of belief they had. These people had knowledge about Jesus, but were unwilling to believe Jesus was really who he said he was. So being saved by Jesus does not come by simply agreeing that he is God. In James 2.19, he says, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Being saved by Jesus is not simply just agreeing that he is God. Being saved by Jesus is reflected in a humble heart that's willing to admit how we have greatly offended him and how desperately we are in need of his grace every single day. And it's expressed by a willingness to surrender to him as Lord over our life, along with a commitment to follow him and his word in all things. Knowledge about God does not necessarily lead to salvation from God. And the second warning, be aware of allowing Jesus to fade into the familiar. Jesus was so familiar to those in Nazareth that it kept him from recognizing who he truly was. They did not see it. If, they, if we are not careful, we can allow the same thing to happen with us. We can read stories about him, attend church on Sundays, walk through religious routines like we always have, but still have a lack of a sense of awe and wonder of who he is. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, this is what I want you to consider. Does Jesus still capture your attention? Does he still spark incredible joy and amazement within your soul? When you hear the gospel proclaimed, 
Does your heart continue to stir with gratitude and affection and joy and recognition of what he's done for you? Or has it just become common to you? Has Jesus become just another aspect of your life instead of the focal point of your life? We're so prone to lose our wonder because our hearts still wrestle with our sinful thoughts and desires. We still want to be the center of our own world. And we need to be reminded often of why he is worthy of our attention and our awe. It's one of the reasons why you hear the gospel every single week in this pulpit. We want to be reminded of this every single week. We're prone to forget, and we need to be reminded. Familiarity leads to blind eyes and dull senses. What once produced awe later can barely get our attention. We must commit ourselves to be humbly vigilant. We must each day start focusing the eyes of our hearts on the stunning glory of God and his amazing life-transforming grace. We must resist allowing familiarity to replace divine glory with the mundane. We serve an infinite God worthy of eternal glory who could never be exhausted of reasons to be praised. He's more than enough to fuel infinite desire. Because we serve an eternal God, even in eternity, we're going to be continually learning how amazing our Lord is because he's that good and he's that eternal. Next week, we're going to move on to chapter 6, the later sections. The sections that are right ahead of us are Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, the death of John the Baptist, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and Jesus walks on water. I encourage you all to read ahead and get ready for the truths of the Spirit will lead us in next week. So let's pray. I pray, Lord, that if anyone here is still in unbelief, that they will think deeply about the power that extends into their life, into time and eternity. May they turn to Christ so that the windows of heaven can be opened and the flood of blessing be poured out on their life now and forever. Thank you for this worship this morning, Lord. Thank you for reminding us of the magnificence of the heaven to come and the gathering of all the saints who will be there in your presence. Enjoy forever and ever. We thank you, Lord, for the call of the gospel, for its clarity, for its truthfulness, that we do not follow cunningly devised fables and are eyewitnesses of your majesty. If we have read the eyewitness accounts, we thank you for the power of scripture to convey to us the truth of Christ. Christ. 